I think there are two activities in the life of a follower of Jesus that you probably encounter and have to participate in before you ever fully understand what they are or why you would do them. I think those things are prayer and worship. Worship being the singing at church. You go to church and it's just what's happening when you walk in the doors. You walk in the building for church service and there will always be prayer, worship, and preaching. And at least the preaching happens to you. It's not participatory. You sit there, you observe. Maybe at best you take notes. I can handle that. Prayer, sometimes also easy to navigate. Close your eyes, bow your head, let someone else do the praying from the front. I'm okay. But worship is a full-on participatory activity that you're invited into, into usually long before you ever understand what on earth it is or why on earth you would do it. And the preaching makes sense. We should learn from an expert about this God that we can't see. And if we ever find an expert at Vintage, I promise we'll get them in the rotation. Prayer makes sense. If God is real, we should talk to him. And then worship. Like apparently we just have to have a right jolly old sing-along karaoke session every week. And in prayer, people are fairly normal sometimes. But worship... Suddenly, I've got people waving flags, dancing around the room, yelling, putting their hands in the air, clapping off beat. Like, like one time, I tried to clap on beat, and a guy in a khakis and a polo nudged me and said, we don't do that here. Like, not, not here. We just have to accept that this is what following Jesus is. And so we just do this sing-along every single week. And we have to do it without necessarily understanding it. I think for a lot of us, we don't really get a good reason for why we're doing this. I was raised in the church, and I don't think I fully understood why we were doing worship until I was a youth pastor having to preach it. That's not the place I want us to be in. So why do we do it? Here's the three main reasons why I think most of us worship. Number one, the Bible tells us to. Number two, I go to church, and that's what we do at church. And number three, I know that God is good, so I'm supposed to tell him that through song, apparently. These are terrible reasons. If this is all we have for why we worship, then worship is probably always going to be the singing at church. It's going to be why I want to linger on the sidewalk and take an extra long time getting coffee and a donut. It's going to be why I show up late and I walk in the sermon only. It's going to be why I don't mind driving around looking for a parking spot. Full confession, in my lifetime of being a church goer, I've done all these things and I've spent a long portion of time trying to figure out what I'm going to do during the worship. I did youth ministry for a lot of years and it's amazing how much people need to go to the bathroom during the worship. But these three bad reasons are sneakily rooted in some form of truth, so they linger, and often they can help us last in worship for a while. The Bible tells me to. Bad reason number one. But yes, it does. Like, the Bible does tell us to. But I don't worship Jesus because the Bible tells me to. I worship Jesus because I love Jesus. Jesus took Scripture seriously. And so if I'm interested in Jesus, then I'm interested in what the Bible is going to tell me about worship. I go to church, and that's what we do at church. Yes, 
but I do not just do it because it's the norm. There is no area of life that I would encourage you to just do something because that's what the other people in the room are doing. That's anti-intellectual brainwashed behavior, and a church that endorses that is a church you should run away from. However, it is true that every good church worth its salt should be practicing corporate worship together. Then bad reason number three, God is good, so I'm supposed to tell him that through song apparently. Yes, God is good, but he doesn't demand worship. He's not an egotistical, insecure child demanding that we dance and sing like clowns to puff up his fragile self-esteem. That would be a God not worth worshiping. Humans who have encountered God have found it fitting to make it part of our tradition because singing songs to someone is a time-tested way to tell someone that you have affection for them. When we sing songs to people, like to people, the picture is usually some crooning singer-songwriter declaring love. It is Romeo throwing poetry up to Juliet on a balcony window. If you've ever had someone write you a song, that person was in love with you, like guaranteed. I know you're like, no, they're just such a good friend. No, they were in love with you. <laughs> like they were in love with you. A friend goes, hey, I heard this song. I liked it. It made me think of you. Someone in love with you goes, I wrote you a song. Can I play it for you? <laughs> this is just human behavior towards an object of affection. God is worthy of it. He demands worship not out of ego, he demands worship in the way a last-second buzzer beater demands that you get up and yell. It's the appropriate response. But even if I can like solve those three bad reasons a little bit and find the truth in them, these are still to me not enough. And to be honest, they don't nearly explain or describe the totality of what is happening when we worship. So here's what I want to do today. I want to give a proper theology of worship, if I can. What is happening when we worship? Why would we worship? And the outcome of what happens when we worship. And then I want to tackle some practicals of how we worship, because I think those are not spoken about enough. Raising our hands, singing out our own song. Like, these are things I don't think we talk about enough. We just have to do them because someone on the stage tells us to. So that's what we want to do today. So first, a theology of worship. Number one, worship is for everyone. Let's just start there. Everyone is a worshiper. Worship is about aligning the passion, vision, values, attention, energy, and capacities of your life toward that which matters most to you. I stole that from John Tyson. So there's no getting out of this. There's no like Randy Jackson, like uh, American Idol judge, like that's not for me, dog. Like there's no version of that for us in worship, because we all have something that matters to us most. Everyone is a worshiper. It's just a matter of what you worship. Your affection, praise, delight, wonder, focus, and admiration has to go somewhere. The Apostle Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 1. So as is becoming our new tradition here at Vintage, I want to invite you to stand as we read from Scripture together. This is just a way of observing that scripture holds some wonderful truth. 
It is God's word to us, and we honor it by standing. So Romans 1, starting in verse 19, says this. What may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And we move down to verse 25 says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. You guys can go ahead and grab a seat. As human beings, we are worshipers. We will worship something, either something worthy of worship or something unworthy of worship. We can worship the uncreated one or something within creation. And on a logical, intellectual level, I only want to worship what is worth my time and affection. That makes sense to me. I have to worship something, well then I'm going to make sure that the thing I'm giving my affection to is worthy of it. As a follower of Jesus, I'm a person who believes that God is the creator of the universe, the king of all that exists, the savior of my soul, the provider of all that is good. So logically for me, he's the one that I want to worship. And maybe you're in this room and you don't know if Jesus is the one you want to worship. That's okay, great. You're on a journey to investigate that claim. I invite you to lean in today. Listen in as we talk about what it means to worship Jesus. Maybe you're in this room and you've been following Jesus for a long time. You understand that you should worship Jesus, but you've never felt like you got a good explanation for why we insist on singing every time we get together. I hope that today you find a beautiful why and that worship opens up for you like a flower coming into bloom like the sun coming out on the first day of spring, just as you'd begun to forget what warmth on your face felt like. And some of us in this room have been deeply hurt around worship before. We felt coerced or manipulated by singers on stages and preachers like me yelling at you, and you're deeply skeptical of this sermon already. You've experienced corporate worship as an exercise in anti-intellectual, cool aid drinking group think. So hopefully let me try and set you at ease. I have zero ambitions for you all to sing louder in the closing set of worship today. That would be a waste of my time. My genuine heart is to give you a window into the beauty of Jesus that awakens you to the stunning nature of how he has designed us to interact with him. Hope that you find for the first time in a long time, you're in a safe space 
to open up to Jesus again in a crowded room. So let's dig in. I try to write sermons that are easy for note takers. So if you're a note taker today, I have five points coming up. Point number one, these are the five possibilities of corporate worship. Number one, worship is a place of communion with God and the other people in the room. This is not just songs sung at heaven. This is a communal interaction with the divine. Worship is a relational moment of connectivity between you and Jesus where you take a radically dangerous posture of asking God to meet you face to face. This is heaven bending towards earth as a father leans into his children. Do you understand? This is, this is you, like little old you, coming face to face with the God who spun the stars into creation. This is you participating in intimate, vulnerable, real relationship with the God of the whole universe. This is romantic, transformative, passionate, vibrant, transcendent mixing of the physical and the spiritual as heaven stands before earth and the person of Jesus embraces you. Is this your vision of what happens when we worship? If that wasn't enough, When we get together to do this, not only is it beautiful and brilliant as an offering of love to Jesus in that it creates a vertical relationship like me to God, we are getting together in a room with other people. And so what it does is it creates a relationship horizontally between each other. As we do something together in spite of the fact that everything else about us might be different. Worship is the gathering of a people to talk to God through the medium of music. This is the intertwining of lives like threads being woven into a tapestry. It is live improvisational choir making magic together through collaborative creativity. We offer the complexity of our lives and the history of our wildly varied experiences with God and we throw them at a canvas together. Every single time we gather together to sing It is a unique and dynamic offering of love. No two worship services are ever, ever the same because it is an eclectic mix of people in different times and places, in different moods, with different voices and ways of expressing, with different stories and testimonies and histories, all saying together, I love Jesus, and that makes me love the person next to me too. This happens nowhere else in all of creation. No creative director could dream of such an extravagantly creative and complex, spontaneous work of art, music, love, humanity, emotional depth, radical transformation, connection, hope, joy, and beauty. This is what happens when we worship. My analogy for this is Taylor Swift played a lot of shows at SoFi Stadium recently, right? Like 80,000 people gathered together to offer their adoration to like this person on a stage who they love and they get together and this like beautiful did anybody go to like era's talk tour you were there felt like you all you're all on my instagram posting reels of it so like i know some of you were there Eighty thousand people going common bond between us is this person on the stage that we all like and we're going to get together and sing songs together and if you went if you've ever been to a concert like that like it's kind of magical just that 
Worship is more like if you and Taylor Swift were best friends and she'd saved your life multiple times. <laughs> and every single song was about your relationship together. And every single person you were there had that same level of experience. And instead of you just, uh, you know, vacantly without knowledge or in the background singing, she's like aware of you right there and then goes, do you want to interact together? And calls you up on stage. And then if that was like potentially radically healing for you, this is like what worship is like. Here's, here's my thing though. Sometimes we treat worship in an environment like this as a solo experience with Jesus, but just you're there, right? Like, I'm just going to worship God. I'm going to kind of ignore that on my left and right are a bunch of people and in front of me, somebody and behind me is somebody. I'm going to pretend I'm alone, but I'm just with a lot of other people. This misses the point. Go do that in your bedroom. Put Spotify on and do that. Corporate public worship together is vulnerability in relationship, both vertically and horizontally. There is an acknowledgement of the person next to you. For that reason, we actually need to be trusting of and safe with the people around us. We need to feel free to interact with Jesus and them in like a dynamic tango, which I'm going to acknowledge is kind of hard sometimes when you get into a room this size where you go, I don't know if everybody has my back. And if I sing loud, I don't know if everybody's going to match me. And if I go for it, I don't know if this person's going to be annoyed that I start accidentally bumping into them. You ever done where you raise your hands and then you touch the other person's fingers on accident? Then you have to just, you have to just pretend like that didn't happen and I'm never sitting next to you ever again. We have to move past this to a point of like, we're together in this, correct? Only then will we start to see a level of breakthrough in worship where we experience it the way it's supposed to be. That's number one. Number two, worship is a place where we draw water from the only well that satisfies. John chapter four, there is a beautiful story of Jesus. It says this, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water from the well, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans in this time and culture. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You know as well as I do that as human beings, we trudge the earth looking for something to satisfy the longings and desires of our hearts. We feel the friction of life on a daily basis. This life is hard. And we need respite, we need comfort, we need something more than just like this. Listen, I love my life, my life is good, but there's gotta be something more 
than cars and apartments and Airbnbs in Palm Springs and work and drinks at Santa Monica Brew Works and weddings and funerals and visiting the doctor to renew your prescription, parent-teacher conferences and dishes and laundry and watching Ant-Man 3, Quantumania. Like, there has to be more than this. The longer you live, the more you will find out that nothing satisfies, and there are people in this room much older than I who would attest to that fact. Even if life is great, it's not enough. Sometimes I think when you're younger, we don't get this. Have you ever been, I was at Disneyland last year, and uh, I was in line for the Star Wars, the, one of the Star Wars rides, and it was like a three-hour wait, and I've got kids with me, and I'm like, this better be worth it. But the entrance to the line is by the exit of the line, and so we start asking, as people are exiting the line, and we're entering the line, I go, is this worth it? And they're like, yeah, it's the best ride I've ever been on in my life. And I go, great, then I'm in. But if they'd been coming out going, it's not worth it, the end product was not worth the weight that we had. I'm a fool if I don't pay attention to what they're saying on their way out. Those of us in this room that are younger, maybe we need to learn from those that are older when they say, no, I've lived a life and nothing satisfies like Jesus. When we come to God in worship, we are coming to drink from the well of living water that actually satisfies. The presence of God delivers on the promise to be what you need on the deepest level. John Tyson says, God is committed to satisfying your deepest desires by thrilling you with himself. Too often I think we get it twisted. If God wants to satisfy our deepest desires by thrilling us with the stuff we ask for, but he promises to thrill you with himself. I think sometimes we come to worship like this woman coming to the well going, same old, same old. And then Jesus says, if you even knew the encounter you could be having right now, you'd be asking and expecting for something different. Sometimes we come to worship expecting the same well to draw the same water that still leaves us thirsty. And actually there's an availability for us offered by Jesus for something that if we asked for, would be so much more. Psalm 63 puts this beautifully. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life my lips will glorify you. This is worship. Coming to the well with our empty, dry bucket, and we lower it down, and we pull it up, and it comes back filled with living, healing, refreshing, soul-restoring, and actually satisfying waters of eternal life. Number three, worship is a place to acknowledge and encounter our external source of help. Simply put, life is way too hard to go through it thinking you are the solution to all your problems. In worship, I come before God and acknowledge that I need him, I ask him for help, I seek his solutions, his way, his provision, and I find comfort in the truth that hallelujah, it does not depend on me. 
Psalm 40 says this, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. But as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. This is the cry of a worshiper who comes before God saying, I need an external source of help because what I have in me is not enough. But I think most of us go through life aware that what we have is not enough, but not aware that we can seek an external source of help in worship. I think this is one of the major causes of stress and anxiety in our lives, that we don't feel like we have the external source of help. In fact, it's the common narrative for our cultural moment I got here on my own. I have to look out for number one because no one else is going to do it. It's just me, myself, and I, and my problems, both in myself and in the world, and they feel insurmountably huge. In worship, I find a, the solution is outside of myself. And so not only can I exchange anxiety for peace at the foot of the cross in the place of worship, I can even find hope for the future. This is what happens when we worship. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Number four, this is the scary one. Worship is a place of confession, repentance, and acceptance. Worship, like any good music or any good art, has to be honest. If you've ever seen art that you didn't like, it's probably because you found it to be disingenuous. You found it not to connect. You found it not to be honest on the artist's part. Art that moves you and stirs you and compels you is honest. Worship is the same. Worship at its best is the most honest and raw place of expression where your deepest brokenness can be poured out instead of held in. Your greatest flaws exposed, your greatest shame pulled out of you, your regrets and mistakes can be laid bare in worship in front of other people. You trade it all in for acceptance and grace and love, and I know that this kind of sounds awful, but is actually beautiful and healing because it doesn't really happen anywhere else. That you get together with a whole bunch of people and you're naked in your vulnerability and your brokenness and your flaws. Maybe 12-step programs get the closest, but not quite in the way that worship can get. This is what worship can do. It can create a space to come before God and say, I'm sorry. You can come before God and say, I need my life to change. You can come before God and say, I'm not okay. You can turn from a certain way of living. You can change your trajectory. You can come back home. You can find that in the place of worship, the hardness of your heart is melted. You can be truly 
properly honest, all in three songs and a tag before the British guy gets up and reads from the Bible. Seriously, how much of your life is actually, truly, transparently naked in its honesty? Our whole life is filters, curated feeds, calculated and controlled images of ourselves. And in worship, we can undo it all and be real. Psalm 51 is this beautiful song of honesty and repentance. So the psalmist David, after his greatest flaws and sins have been exposed, he says, cleanse me and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my inequity. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. In worship, you get to bring the ugliest part of yourself to God. And in any, and in any other environment, that would be rejected and shamed. But in worship, you find a warm embrace, a wholehearted acceptance, and a kindness of friendship that you will not find anywhere else. And it's actually really important that we do that together. Where our sin happens in secret most often, it is good for our restoration to be in public. It is good for other people to see. They don't even, they don't even know all the details, but it is good for other people to see you come before God with a broken and contrite heart and be restored. Number five, finally, worship is a place of testimony where I am reminded of the truth. In worship, I stand in a room with other people and I sing and maybe shout things at the top of my lungs, not just because they are true, but because they remind me of what is true. Sometimes I need to hear the things I'm singing. I know the devil is a liar. I know my flesh is eager to believe him, and I know the world will wear me down until I have forgotten what is right and true and perfect and good. And when I sing songs of the people of God, I remind myself of the story I am living in. I remind myself of the testimonies of what God has done, and I remind myself that no matter what else I might be feeling in the moment, that there is an eternal truth of God's goodness that I need to reacquaint myself with. My whole life, I get to live out in the world, in the city of LA, in an extreme politically progressive post-Christian culture that tells me every single day that God does not exist, he does not love me, and what I need to do is just do me, be successful, and worship myself. This is not, however, how I was born to live. When I worship, I am reorienting my compass to true north, to a position of health and rightness before God as an act of holy rebellion against the doctrines of this world. When I worship, I empty myself of ego 
self-importance, worldly thinking, sinful worldviews. I cast off the false self. I return my soul to a place where it was born to be. And I begin to do again what I was always made to do. Bring glory to God. You see, worship is the altar where I remind myself of the truth and that I live out that truth by putting myself in the correct posture before God, laid out as a living sacrifice. What a date night is to marriage, worship is to you and God. Because date night, what we do is we affirm truths that were true hopefully every other day of the week. I don't only love my wife on date night. I hopefully love her every single night. But on date night is the night when I intentionally make sure that it is stated and known. This is what we do when we come before God in worship. How we have lived the rest of the week, what has been in our bones, is then intentionally laid bare and stated. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 says this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You are a human being in relationship with an eternal and divine being who loves you beyond comparison, has saved your life, and wants to pour out his love on you. Whatever our obstacles are to worship, let's just be clear about this. We need to worship, and there is no limit to the wonderful things that can happen when we do. It is worth it. So to close, I have a few minutes, and I want to look at some practicals. We have talked about the theology of worship. I hope that somewhere in the last 20 minutes, you have found something that opens the door of your heart, a crack to go, I am expecting more when I worship than I was before. I am excited for who God will be and how he's going to reveal himself to me when I worship. I am excited for what can happen and be transformed in my heart when I give God glory. But then also, what do we practically do when we do it? Because I think there's a lot of learned behavior that we go, I don't really know why I'm doing that. Here's the few that stand out to me. There's probably way more than this, but these are the things that happen that we do when we worship often. Raising our hands, common thing we do in worship. Most of us think we don't know why. Number two is dancing or like freedom in worship. I don't know how to define this one, but often it's, it's true of like, you're like, well, that person's really free in worship. Right? And it's like, it's like, you know the person I'm talking about, right? They're kind of weird, but kind of awesome. You respect them and fear them at equal amounts. <laughs> Singing out your own song, like some kind of like, yeah, make your own song to the Lord. And you're like, yeah, but I'm not a professional musician, so that's going to be very hard for me to do. That one's interesting. And then fourth one, finally, I want to get to is uh, interacting and feel safe with others in the room. I'm going to go through these quickly because I... One thing that's annoying is to always talk about doing something and then never get to do it. So I've talked about worship for a long time. I'd hate to talk so much that we go, oh, we got no time for actually doing it. So I'm going to try and rush through these. Number one, raising our hands. I hear a lot from people, uh, either they raise their hands because sure, the song says to, or 
people that would go, yeah, I actually don't raise my hands. I'm not the kind of hand-raising person. Maybe you're in this room and you're like, yeah, I've never raised my hand it's in worship before. I don't get why we do that. That's for more extroverted and expressive people than me. Here's my pushback. Gently, lovingly, kindly, with sensitivity. Communication is a physical thing. When we are worshiping, we are communicating with God. There is a classic study by Albert Morabian on communication where he found that 55% of our communication is visual communication. 38% is the tone of how we say something. And only 7% is the actual words that we say. So when we just say the words on the screen, that's a very small amount of communicating with God. And if we're going to be real human beings, being authentic in the way we commune and relate to God, we actually involve our tone and our bodies in how we do it. For us to ignore our bodies in worship and keep them frozen is not how we actually interact with any other living creature. Like even bugs, you have like a physical reaction to them. Dogs, I know when you see a dog and you go into like dog mode, right? Like everybody, you see a new ba a baby for the first time and you, we have physical reactions to relationships. Raising our hands is one. And here's why I think this one is beautiful for two reasons. Raising our hands, number one, babies reach out. This is like a instinctual thing that babies do is to reach out once they recognize the person who they love or are bonded to. It is like a beautiful, primal, innate thing to go, that's the object of my affection. I actually want to reach out toward them as a signal of come closer. We even do this in real life. Like, you know, every mom ever or every grandma, they do the like, <laughs> this move that means I'm going to hug you in a little bit. Every mom does this. Every grandma does this. Number two is this. In every single culture in society, when people celebrate, they raise their hands. Like, it's, it's not a learned behavior. In any single culture, when victory happens, when celebration happens, when there is something to be excited about, it's like a jack in, our hands just go up. A jack-in-the-box just reaction just goes up. If we actually deny and withhold this reaction because I'm not the kind of person that does that kind of stuff, I totally get feelings of insecurity and maybe you're like, ah, this feels embarrassing or hard to do. I acknowledge all of that. But it's part of our human nature to actually do it. This is why we raise our hands in worship. Okay, dancing and freedom in worship. I hear all the time phrases like, not to me necessarily, but I hear it commonly in church of people saying things like, oh, I wish I was as free as you in worship, or I wish I could be like as, as carefree as you in worship, but I'm not a dancer, I'm more reserved, like that's just not me. And I think this is true to some degree. Often the people you see dancing in church are like people who sometimes they like have dancing training or they're like uh, improv performers and they've trained their bodies and brains to push past like embarrassment or cringiness and like to be just like, hey, I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to yes and what's happening and hope that someone follows me. Some people are more naturally rhythmic or musical, and so they feel like, like some of us are just dancers, not me. Some of us are genuinely just dancers, and dancing just feels good, or you've had training in it, so it doesn't feel embarrassing. But a lot of us are like, wow, this is like the most vulnerable you could ever be. I totally get it. However, everyone I've ever met who says they're not a dancer dances when their, ambitions get, when their inhibitions get low enough. 
right? And whether that is through like, it's at a wedding and we've had one too many glasses of champagne, suddenly like grandpa, who's very stern and doesn't dance, he's on a table with a tie tied around his head, playing with like the kids at the wedding, like it happens. Or maybe you're at a sports event and you're like, I'm not an extroverted person, but when your team like wins in the last second, suddenly you're very extroverted and expressive. Or maybe you're at a Taylor Swift concert and you're suddenly crying and bawling, not usually an emotional person, but you're just like in hysterics because something beautiful is happening. Now, I'm not trying to coerce anybody into dancing if you don't feel like it, but I want to encourage you to open your heart to in worship. Is there even the freedom for God to stir you enough where you'd go, hey, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do in worship? This is freedom in worship. I'm not asking you to act outside of your personality, but let's just not limit our personality based on pretty valid insecurities. Number three, singing out your own song. This is the main one I want to unpack. Here's the thing. So modern worship music, the way we do it in modern times with screens that display lyrics... Uh, the lyrics are there to help out us average folk. We have bad memories and we need reminders, but also we're not, most of us are not poets and theologians, and we actually need, it is a good thing that we have poets and theologians writing our songs, right? If the average person was writing the lyrics for our worship songs, they would be bad, right? It is, it is good and right that someone better at this than the average person is writing with theological training and knowledge of poetry and what's going to stir a human heart. They're writing, hopefully, good lyrics and good melodies, we sometimes need the words of others to help communicate what we feel. Like, have you ever read a poem and been like, that's how I feel? Have you ever heard a song and you're like, get out of my brain, I don't know how you've done it, but that's exactly how I feel, but I didn't have the words for it? This is what good worship music should do. However, you have a unique history with God. Nobody knows your life your story, your complex circumstances, and the depths of your intimacy with God. So to some level, the songs we sing on the screens are the bare skeleton of our worship. Hugely important because, man, we need some theologians and poets writing our lyrics, and we need some musicians writing our melodies. But no theologian or musician or poet is going to be able to articulate for you exactly how God was there for you when your parents got divorced, or how he rescued you in the depths of your addiction, or how he answered your prayers in that hospital waiting room, or how he comforted you when you stood at the grave of a loved one, or how he never left you when you abandoned him. Your voice is your fingerprint of praise. And so sometimes we lead ourselves in worship. We sing out our own song, and when we do, we add something unique and mysterious and profound, and we inspire others with our praise, and we take the blank canvas of a praise song, and we light it up with color. There's a discipline and a skill to this. You have to learn how to do it. You have to learn how to play jazz. You have to find the praise between the lyrics, the musical breaks. You have to find the space between songs where your affection can be stirred, because you're not just following the lyrics like a karaoke robot. You're following the leading of the Holy Spirit as he dances through the song until you find layers of depth and emotion that you weren't aware of before. And finally, interacting and feeling safe with others. If you don't trust the brothers and sisters next to you to come with you when you worship, 
it will be the most limiting factor on your worship. If you feel scared or embarrassed that they're gonna think you're singing too loud, if, you, if like the people you came with, like you guys have a social agreement, the people you came with. If you came here with someone today, you have probably an unspoken social agreement of what appropriate worship behavior is. Have you ever acknowledged with them like, hey dude, I'm gonna go for it in worship today. And they go, me too. <laughs> or they go, good for you. I'll, I'll sit one seat over. I, whatever it is, the, the, there's a social tr- a contract that we have together of how we feel about worship. And some of you might have entered into this room and you're like, I love to go wild. And then you're like, oh, that is not what everybody else is doing. Or you're like, oh, I'm physically, I don't have enough room. Like the room's too full. I guess I got a limit. Or sometimes you come in and you go, whoa, this is way more expressive than I want it to be. I'm going to try and sit at the back where no one's going to bump into me. All of this is okay. But what if what happens when we all go, we're in this together, we came for one reason and it's to worship Jesus. And actually, what if during worship, here's what I think, this, this is like the breakthrough moment for worship for me that I've found all throughout life. Your worship to Jesus will go through the roof when you feel trustworthy with the person next to you. And if you can have, here's my vision of worship, that as much as you're singing and praising Jesus, you're like nudging the person next to you and smiling. And you're like laughing with your friend. Like we do this at worship uh, at concerts, right? If you go to a Taylor Swift concert, like when a song comes on that you love, you're gonna be like, ah, to the person next to you, right? Or you might even turn and sing it like to their face. Like, ah, this is the best part. Like, I think that's okay in worship. You don't have to pretend no one else is there. You can go, we're all here together. Look at us doing this. Like, I love Jesus. You love Jesus. Let's sing. Oh, you're singing. Oh, harmonies. Okay, I'm gonna, I don't, like, just be free. Like, what if we found space in worship to play? What if we found space in worship to play? Will you guys stand up with me?